G-Core CDN is a next-generation content delivery network that accelerates your application's static and dynamic content. G-Core CDN has you covered around the globe with more than 150 edge locations and 11,000 peering partners worldwide. And of course, G-Core CDN supports IPv4 and IPv6. Go to gcore.com slash packetpushers to find out more. That's gcore.com slash packetpushers. Welcome to the IPv6 Buzz podcast, where we dare to dive into the 128-bit address space wormhole. Quick reminder that there are sponsorship opportunities available for IPv6 Buzz and all the other Packet Pusher podcast shows. If you're interested, you can go to packetpushers.net slash sponsorship for details. And if you got something cool working with IPv6, well, we want to hear from you. Join us on the IPv6 Buzz and tell us what you got working with IPv6 and why it was cool. I'm Tom Coffeen with my co-host Scott Hope. Ed Horley is traveling today, but I know otherwise he'd be adding his sageness or at least his opinions to today's topic, which is zero trust architecture and IPv6, if and where they intersect now and in the future. And since ZTA is ostensibly a security topic, we're going to be relying heavily on our in-house security expert, Mr. Scott Hogue, to help us make sense of it all. So let's jump right in with some questions. Scott, how's it going? It's going good. Yeah, it is out of office, or we say, oh, colon, colon. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Out of office. Um, yeah, I'm doing good. How are you, Tom? Yeah, good. Thanks. Thanks for asking. I'm excited about our topic today. Um, ZTA, I, I, Zero yeah. Trust Architecture. I, I know uh, there's there's quite a bit of hand waviness around this topic, but I guess we should probably start out with the basics. And I, uh, you know, what is ZTA and, and sort of where did it originate? Yeah, it's a term that sometimes gets overloaded or or confused. I think and it also sounds pretty draconian that there is zero trust. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we you know, the internet is zero trust. We don't trust the internet, you know, and things that you know, you know, tra you know, transfer across the internet, uh traverse the internet, but we don't completely there's no absence of trust of things inside of an enterprise or there is some trust between customers and a vendor or employees and their employer. There's some trust, but trust needs to be earned or established or established. And that is done through identity or or convincing, you know, the client convince the server that they're trustworthy. In the past, you know, we typically have had clients validate the trustworthiness of a server through a certificate or something like that, where Zero Trust uses other methods to establish trust, you know, bidirectionally and do things like, you know, mutual authentication, like maybe, you know, or mutual TLS, where mm -hmm. the server can validate the client's certificate as well in both directions, uh, like MTLS. Right. Uh, but then also zero trust is this idea of using not just, you know, oh, you know, the username and the password, but other attributes of the client that can be used to confirm the identity or authenticity, validity of that connection. And, and then also grant access to certain applications only based on someone's role or responsibility or, or, or their job function. Right. 
And how much of how much of what we characterize as zero trust architecture? I mean, we you know we sort of come at it from the standpoint of network architects and engineers, and and sort of our our listening audience sort of falls mostly into that category, I think. And you know, there's security folks. There's obviously overlaps, and the, the OSI model we sort of bleed into different layers. And I think maybe you know if you if you corner someone that's sort of new to the ZTA concept on that that focuses on networks, like their first sort of take on what it is, you know, like they think immediately think like micro segmentation. And then I think maybe that sort of pushes them into a posture of thinking that, uh, you know, that everything ZTA related can, you know, sort of be solved at the network layer. But I, I don't know that's probably not true, right? I mean, really, we're talking about, you know, different approaches that would certainly, could certainly require micro segmentation. Um, but, you know, as you point out, there are things at the application layer and, you know, using certificates and establishing identity. And of course, a lot of this should all be driven by policy, which in many cases is, is not all super clear in organizations about who owns what. And so I don't know, like mm -hmm. when we start digging into the details, it, uh, it it turns into kind of a labyrinth of a lot of different choices and options and design sort of concepts. And, and it's sort of hard mm -hmm. to distill it all down to, you know, what's the next best thing that you're going to do or the next thing that you can do to sort of move in a zero trust architecture direction? Yeah. I mean, many enterprises have a a VLAN 100 in their data center, <laughs> a traditional on-premises network or VLAN, and it has lots of applications on it, not just you know related to one particular type of application. Like it has finance, it has HR, it has payroll, it has many other applications, storage and other stuff and marketing. All these applications are co-resident in a single network and they aren't separated from each other. So let's say we take the finance application and we put it in its own little enclave and then we create, you know, and then we somehow denote those users that are finance, you know, accountants, controllers, and they need to access that application. So we somehow then maybe move those end users into another realm or allow them to validate their, uh, their identity or their role and then grant them access to that. Now, um, the Cloud Security Alliance, you know, and um, created this idea called a software-defined perimeter where there would be this policy decision point where identity or something would be established that controller would unlock access at a, um, you know, a SDP gateway or a, you know, policy enforcement point close to the server and would say only allow these users or finance users to access that application. So we've kind of sequestered the application. We've kind of put the users into an enclave or somehow identify them and we unlock access only for those users to that particular application, you know, on a need to know basis. Anyone else in the world couldn't access that application. They're not in that realm. They're not in that network. They have an established identity. They can't access. They don't even, they can't even send a packet to that finance application. So we've improved security in that way. So we we do things, you know, in the network to make this happen. We do things on the server side. We do things on the client side and we kind of need them all to cooperate. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And to some extent, so then, you know, looping back around to the question of where ZTA sort of intersects with IPv6, you know, all, mm-hmm. everything you've just described is is just riding over the top of, of network plumbing, as it were. And, mm-hmm. you know, to the to the extent that there, there are days where, you know, I get depressed thinking of IPv6 as mm-hmm. just network plumbing. And then other days where I'm mm-hmm. like, hey, you can actually do some cool things with this. And so where that overlap of, you know, because this is not the ZTA buzz, this is the IPv6 buzz. So where where is that overlap where where IPv6 comes into the picture? I mean, I know traditionally with ZTA, uh, the, the, you know, the concept of micro segmentation, there, there seem to be some, some possible benefits there. And then, of course, you know, what you've described kind of if I if I squint, I can sort of see it as an overlay mm-hmm. scenario. And, and I think uh-huh. maybe there's opportunities to use IPv6 in, in an overlay function that would enhance ZTA, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, you could definitely, you know, have an overlay of IPv6 over an underlay of V4v6 or vice versa. Also, with IPv6, there is that this concept of the restoration of the end-to-end model, where the addresses that are used by the server and the client are the actual addresses. They aren't translated or changed in the middle. And with IPv4, we often have, you know, network address translation taking place, if not one or maybe even three to five times between the client, you know, they're maybe they're working remotely, their CPE device or in their phone or in the service service provider network across the internet at the web, you know, at the reverse proxy of the web tier mm-hmm. at the, you know, container layer, there may be another NAT, there could be many NATs. And so you, with IPv4, you don't have this, you know, on the server, the server sees an address, but it's the address of the most, the closest you know, device, closest translator. Mm-hmm. And even if it's doing X forwarded for and containing the client address, that client address was another NAT somewhere else. So you lose this authenticity of the client's address. And if you're you're looking for other attributes to say, we we think this user is this person, you know, it's been modified in transit. Yeah. And so like with IPsec, we have AH and ESP, and we generally don't do AH and IPv4 because there's so much translation. So we do ESP, ESPH, Mac, uh, Mac. You know, and we do NAT traversal because <laughs> right. we know because we can't authenticate the header. But with IPv6, we could authenticate the header. There is some authenticity there by using you know just the natural IPv6 addresses. Yeah, and maybe there's an opportunity. You mentioned the end-to-end model, and then you know maybe traditionally that sort of uh, pushes the, uh, the 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 concept of that sort of. The, the implication of is that it sort of pushes security up to the application level, right? But then, you mm-hmm. know, as you point out, I mean, you, you, you can't traverse the network without traversing many, many NATs. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of wonder where, you know, the zero trust architecture setting aside V6 and going back to just sort of pure ZTA, like, mm-hmm. you know, how that sort of fits in a network model where you have so many NATs and, and so many, you know, like a confusion of of possible policy enforcement points and, and what that ends up yeah looking like. And I, and I, I think back to some of the earlier initiatives with IPv6 to try to solve some security problems, some stuff that didn't make it out of the really, it made it out of the lab, but, but didn't really make it into wider production, like things like send, you know, which is more limited obviously mm-hmm. to the land. But, mm-hmm. you know, I wonder if there's an opportunity here to 
take what ZTA, you know, how it's defined and, and what it's trying to do and, and innovate using some of the functions or, or features of IPv6. And, and the first yeah. one, like everything's the, the address planning nailed to me and I'm the mm-hmm. hammer, the, you know, we've got this abundance of IPv6 prefix space and, you know, the, the, the idea that you might have uh, a prefix that's set aside to use at a particular site. Mm-hmm. And you, you, if you've done some planning, you know, to sort of future proof your address plan and the network going forward, you, you may have actually more than one prefix set aside at that site. And that could constitute, you know, in the future, any number of, of overlays. And, you know, those overlays could be used for, for any number of purposes, but chief among them for this discussion, I think zero trust architecture, you know, thinking of it as, as the opportunity to do an overlay. Do you, do you see maybe ZTA heading in that direction at some point? Yeah, definitely. I think you'd have an abundance of address space that you could use to, you know, sequester the server. You could create new subnets and and give the server its own subnet. There's also an RFC called Unique IPv6 Prefix Per Host, RFC 8273. And that basically is an RFC that says we can take, let's say, a slash 64 prefix and put it inside the host for a virtual network inside of the server for container or other workloads or service mesh or some architecture inside of the host to, and then that host can maybe with a dynamic routing protocol or something, uh, advertise that it has this prefix inside of it for its use. And it wouldn't have to do NAT. Mm -hmm. It would be, you know, an IPv6 prefix that we could dedicate inside of a host. and, And then we could also use, you know, unique IPv6 addresses in cloud infrastructure. So we just have this abundance of IPv6 addresses for the server side. Uh, and uh, we don't have that you know, with IPv4. So we often do NAT and things like that. And I have overlapping addresses between cloud infrastructure and on-premises. Now on the client side, as we start to build out a zero trust network, let's say we we deem the current network as a, a fully trusted network and we build out these less than trusted realms for end users to move into when they are authenticated or validated we move them into this network or when they connect and authenticate they're placed into these networks that where they've proven their their validity uh we can use ipv6 addresses for those you know new networks and as you're building out these zero trust realms You've got, you know, Greenfield IPv6 addresses to use for that. And if you're trying to do things IPv6 only, you know, per the M2107 OMB mandate for IPv6 only, you could do that with IPv6, build out those new networks that way. Um, So that's another way where you could use the abundance of the IPv6 addresses. Yeah. And then also on the internet, you could then really pay attention to the client address a lot more closely than you do the client IPv4 address, knowing that it probably hasn't been modified in transit. Right, right. And we've talked in the past on other shows about, you know, the, the you mentioned the, the, the possibility of consuming a slash 64 per host. And of course that has like implications for, uh, certainly for, you know, how many 
addresses, how many prefixes you're going to assign to a, to a particular site. It's one thing if you assume, oh, I've got a you know slash 64 that's going on a, a LAN or VLAN interface uh, or, or any other type of network interface. It's, it's quite another thing to think, oh, I've got, you know, uh, I've got to set aside a slash 64 for every host that's coming online uh, at a site. And then, of course, that the upward pressure that that puts on on making sure that you have enough prefix space for that site. But that sort of brings me back around to the, the question that he sort of made me think about and what you just described, which is if we're moving towards an IPv6 only, uh, you know, network architecture overall. And, and it seems like we, at least in the short term, short to medium term, we have to rely uh, we have to continue to rely on on sort of carving up the network using NAT. Uh, you know, tools like DNS 6.4, NAT 6.4, which are kind of essential in an environment where you're trying to move away from dual stack, mm-hmm. and you know you've got you, you you still need to support some applications that might use things like IPv4 literals and and uh, mm-hmm. you know DNS 6.4, NAT 6.4, and and when uh, when CLAT makes it into uh, into all the host OSs and is supported. Um, but then that, then, you know, sort of my question coming out of that, that sort of would seem to muddy the water. Like it's one thing if you have IPv6, you know, everywhere and it's routing is routing with IPv6 and, Mm -hmm. and V4 is out of the picture and you don't have to use, uh, you know, DNS 64, NAT 64 Mm -hmm. or CLAT or anything like any of the the transition technologies. But, but, uh, I wonder how much the, you know, the sort of ideal ZTA architecture that, that, you know, we're trying to get to. Uh, it is, you know, how much it's, you know, how much it's complicated by the fact that we don't really have these pure IPv6 routing as routing domains. If we did, you know, would it be easier to yeah. implement ZTA? I'm not sure. Yeah, I think so. And you're right. NAT64, still NAT. <laughs> <laughs> it still changes the the client's address in, in transit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, the long-term strategy, you know, move to using IPv6. And once IPv6 is more ubiquitous, then it unlocks this this potential of, you know, more authenticity of addresses, uh, less anonymity of clients or attackers hiding behind NATs or, or mega proxies. Once we have IPv6 more ubiquitously deployed, then we can do those creative things that we've talked about before, like uh, moving target defense, uh, where the server, here we have uh, addressless servers or servers listen on many addresses or one address for every client. Hmm. And we start to manipulate the interface identifier, both on the server side and the client side, to either identify the client or uh, in some unique way uh, or embed in the server's uh, interface identifier, <laughs> a, 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 a time-based one-time password or a token or some ephemeral key or a session ID. Those are opportunities that then depend on having IPv6 ubiquitously deployed. So they're further down the road. But yeah, you're right. In the near term, you're going to have to have DNS 6.4, NAT 6.4, or 6.4 XLAT. <laughs> Yeah, they're not they're not going anywhere in the short term. You know, I don't want to equate ZTA and IPv6. Uh, there's some overlap here. I think there's a lot more in. I, I, I was going to say there's a lot more deployment of IPv6 to sort of 
point mm-hmm. to, um, whereas, you know, ZTA is still sort of in its, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, it's still very much in, in its infancy and sort of folks are mm-hmm. feeling around trying to figure out what it's going to look like when it's eventually, uh, you know, deployed and, uh, and, and really uh, instituted in, in network settings that, you know, that today have like, you know, more traditional security models. Um, but but there is that larger point that related to IPv6 deployment, the, the struggle is real to have enough mm-hmm. of a deployment footprint to really test out some of the uh, the innovation that you're describing and, and things mm-hmm. that we could be doing with IPv6 if we had a sort of more homogenous environment, you know, and it, and it seems like we have sort of a, a bunch of different deployment models, depending on, you know, what part of the industry you're sort of functioning in. And, and it's, you mm-hmm. know, obviously the most mature and this is the service provider and the, uh, the eyeball network domain um, and, the, you know, to a lesser extent, the content providers. And then, of course, you get into the enterprise and, and it's still very much a work in progress. So so it, ha- it, sh- it kind of shares that with ZTA, I guess, on the enterprise mm-hmm. side. But having said that, you know, it, it's it's still, you know, there's still much more deployment of, mm-hmm. of IPv6 and, and you know, with any luck, with uh, with a lot of uh, blood, sweat and tears, as Churchill said, you know, we'll, we'll get to a point with V6 where, uh, you know, it, it, it could be a, a good, uh, you know, force multiplier for, for what's possible or what's required with ZTA. Mm-hmm. But I don't think we're really there yet. Yeah. It's a better together story, you know. <laughs> That's right. Let's pause the conversation for a word from sponsor G-Core CDN. G-Core CDN is a next-gen content delivery network that accelerates your application static and dynamic traffic. It's got a global presence with more than 150 edge locations and 11,000 peering partners worldwide. And its entire infrastructure supports IPv6. G-Core can compress, resize, and convert images into AVIG or WebP on the fly. With dynamic content acceleration, websites are smoother and more responsive. G-Core CDN can protect your servers from overloads, be they unexpected traffic spikes or a DDoS attack. Your operations team will appreciate G-Core's extended API and its support for Terraform and Grafana, and your business team will appreciate the generous free plan, which includes one terabyte of monthly traffic and most key CDN features. Find out what G-Core CDN can do for your online presence at gcore.com slash packetpushers. That's gcore.com slash packetpushers. And now back to the conversation. If you were to go forth and do a ZTA project and then later have to come back and then, and you and you just address ZTA with IPv4, then you later came back and then as part of your V6 deployment, then had to come back and revisit all of that design with IPv6 in mind. Well, one, might V6 have changed what you thought or how you approached ZTA, you know, but then it's also a rework. Now you have to, you have two separate projects. Had you, and let's say, you know, ZTA project is a, you know, 1.0 scale project and IPv6 is a 1.0 scale project and you do them separate. Now it's two times, you know, two two levels of effort or two amounts or, or what have you. But if you did them together, if you made IPv6 and baked it into the ZTA and, and when you were deploying service mesh and, you know, secure production identity framework for everyone, Spiffy and mutual TLS, and you did things like that with containers and, and validating clients certificates, had you, you know, deployed that from the start with IPv6, or if you had 
you know, built out your software-defined perimeter controller and software-defined perimeter gateways requiring them to support IPv6 right from the start, or your, you know, zero trust proxy, your identityware proxy, uh, or as you were doing tagging or building overlays, if you built that in v4 and v6 right from the start, yeah, you know, then it would be like the sum would be 1.7, let's say instead of 2.0, <laughs> by <laughs> having right. a, you know not having to treat it as a separate after the fact, come back in and now let's see how we would do it with IPv6 later. You know, if you were buying a zero trust product, you want to make sure it supports IPv6 today because then you could turn on IPv6 when you wanted at your yeah. leisure, at your schedule, not based on when the vendor decides to. Yeah. You wouldn't want to buy a ZTA product that only supported IPv4 today because maybe the vendor doesn't support IPv6. Then you just rolled out this shiny new thing that you intend to have in your in your environment for five years and, and maximize your habit in place for a long time to maximize your value you derive from that investment yeah and now that limits your ability to move to ipv6 on clients and servers yeah absolutely and i think there there's a there's another benefit and, and those were always beating up on vendors saying hey you know you're supporting ipv6 for this or you're supporting ipv6 for that and you know shrug of the shoulders and i don't know mm -hmm. um <laughs> you know but on on good days you get to vendors that are being honest and and on great days you get vendors that have thought thought through what ipv6 means in the product mm -hmm. and have the the, the relevant features uh, either already uh, instituted or on the roadmap uh, but but it is sort of a uh, maybe a good entry point to to sort of test the marketing fluff around zta mm -hmm. we've got this whizzy new zta product oh really well you know, where does it interface with IPv6? Tell, you know, show me how you've thought about, you know, the, what a future network architecture that incorporates IPv6, how that, how your ZTA, your supposed ZTA product fits into that environment. So it's, you know, maybe a good, uh, you know, uh, a good, uh, you know, stick to beat the vendors <laughs> with to yeah. get them to, to, to prove that they're, they're actually thinking more deeply about what ZTA might actually look like in, in, in an actual network. But I don't know, your yeah. mileage may vary. Yeah. Tell me about your Zippy new uh, ZTA product and how it supports the Zippy new IPv6 protocol that's only been around 20 years. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right. Oh, you haven't thought about IPv6? Well, I really question that your ZTA project is all product is all that zippy and modern <laughs> because it doesn't support a, a protocol that's been around for decades. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'd love to hear from some some of our enterprise uh, engineers and architect listeners that that have uh, that have had to interface with ZTA. What sort of uh, mm -hmm. challenges they're running into, and if they've they've started to maybe connect the dots related to IPv6. Was there anything else that we should cover related to ZTA and IPv6? I think IPv6 and and ZTA are adjacent technologies. You sh certainly shouldn't create a ZTA design in the absence of IPv6. If you're considering buying a product, make sure V6 is part of your requirements uh, and, and do it and do the ZTA deployment with IPv6 in mind or, or with IPv6 enabled right from the beginning. Uh, that'll put you in the most advantageous position and you'll extract the most benefit from the, from the product or from the installation or the design. And when you do that. Yeah. Sounds like good advice to me. Well, unlike V6, we've run out of space for this podcast. You can reach the IPv6 Buzz podcast on Twitter or X or whatever they're calling it these days at IPv6 Buzz. 
You can also hit us up uh, on, on the same platform. I'm at IPv6Tom. Scott is at Scott Hogue and uh, at E. Horley for Ed, who's not with us today, but uh, hit him up on uh, Twitter or X if you feel like it. Uh, and because uh, Twitter or X seems to be having some challenges, you can uh, head over to packetpushers.net slash FU to send follow-up questions and comments about the show. That's probably a better way to get a hold of us uh, these days. Uh, thanks for listening to IPv6 Buzz. You can find us on the Packet Pushers or any of your favorite podcast apps. Just search for IPv6 Buzz. If you like the show, please give us a rating on iTunes. If you like the podcast, then we definitely recommend you check out Heavy Networking, Day 2 Cloud, and the Network Break Podcast, plus all the other great technical content over at the Packet Pushers at packetpushers.net. So long, and until next time, we'll see you on the internet. The IPv6 internet, that is. Thanks for listening to IPv6 Buzz, a podcast devoted to truth, justice, and 128 bits of address space. IPv6.